I want GCR to build its brand verbally from the founders that we support. And, and we don't even ever have to promote ourselves at any point. It's that founders are able to recognize our value add, introduce us to projects and, and identify our unique position that we can support them in ways that VCs or crypto investors cannot do. It's something that I think will really speak to the hard work that we do without ever having to promote ourselves. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premier podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. It's a very early morning here. The Web3 wave is sweeping across the world and evolving every day as we speak. From blockchains to decentralized autonomous organizations, or what we call DAOs, how do we think about investing in Web3? To help everyone, I have invited Joyce Yang, Jing Kang, and Daniel Kim from the Global Coin Research DAO to discuss a wide variety of topics today. Truth be told, I'm also a supporter of the GCR DAO recently and have also starting to invest in Web3 startups. So I might have taken positions in any Web3 DAO and companies that we discuss. This is not financial advice and if you want to invest, please, for heaven's sake, do your own research. Welcome Joyce, Jin Kang and Daniel. Thanks Bernard. Excited to be here. Thanks for having us. To start off the conversation, I think we should do a quick round of introductions. We all know Joyce from our previous conversations about crypto and it has been two years back. So to start with Joyce first, you are the co-founder of Global Coin Research. Maybe you should tell me what is Global Coin Research now and as far as I understand, it's now a DAO and also talk about the mission and vision itself. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me back along with my team. So, so for folks who are listening and, and maybe who have followed us before, GCR is a research and investment DAO focused on the Web3 space. Our mission is to be a community-driven VC and research house, which means that our sourcing, our portfolio support and management, and investment access is all provided directly from the community members. So GCR has been around since 2017 already, but we have always focused on community and research. And in the last year, we began to decentralize our core team. We issued a governance slash membership token and kind of became a DAO. And a little bit of background about the DAO, since investing as a DAO together, uh, the community has deployed over $31 million worth of capital and our community investment portfolio, the part of which is liquid, is up 40 times. Thank you, Joyce. Jin and Daniel, this is your first time on the show. Do you want to give a short introduction of yourselves and your background and how did you end up with GCR and what are you doing there? Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Jin Kang, and I'm also leading investments at GlobalCoin Research, as Joyce said, which is an investment DAO with a research newsletter arm. To give a quick background of myself, I grew up in Boston, and after graduating from Princeton, I first started out in the m and group at Bank of America Merrill Lynch and spent the past few years at a private equity firm called Gemstring Capital before joining GlobalCoin Research late last year. It has been a fun and rewarding journey ever since joining GlobalCoin Research, but how I joined was actually through Daniel. He went to the same university as I did, and I actually met Joyce at an event last year at NFT NYC, and I talked to her and I loved the vision of where Global Coin Research was headed and wanted to be a part of it. So at the end of the conversation, decided to join the DAO and became a full-time after that. Yeah. As Jin mentioned, I also went to Princeton. Jin and I were classmates back at Princeton. And just coming out of college, I did five years of traditional finance. So I think back on those days as a, as a former life, I did investment banking, private equity, hedge fund investing, all with a focus on distressed real estate and distressed assets. And it was around 2021 where I took a step back 
and asked myself what I wanted to do long term. And I, I realized that the decentralized future was, was the future of finance, technology, investing, building, all those sorts of things. And so I decided to make the jump. And my personal take on DAOs is that all DAOs will become investment DAOs. And from con contributing to a number of them, what I found was that GCR had the most decentralized and open approach to its investments. I found that it was fundamentally different from a crypto VC or from the larger, more traditional investment DAOs. And for that reason, it, it just drew me right in. And so at GCR, a lot of what I do is I, I lead investments with Jin. And I'm al I also do a little bit of everything on the governance side of things, onboarding, liquidity management, legal stuff. It's been early. GCR has only been around for, for about a year in its, in its DAO format, but it's been a lot of fun. There's been a ton of growth. Thank you, Daniel and Jude. Okay, I think the best way to start this is to baseline all our listeners because most of them should probably be still living in a Web2 space. Okay, each one of you give me your point of view about what Web3 is. Yeah, I could start. I think from living and breathing crypto and essentially Web3 in the last couple of years, to me, what the community embodies in Web3 is a new paradigm for work and user engagement. So what that means is instead of extractive approach that the traditional Web2 com companies adopt for their employees and users, the Web3 model makes the consumers and employees the owners. And in GCR's case, it makes employees and the consumers the investors and give them the control and decision-making power to dictate the future of you know, our project. So that's what I feel like is what we found to be the best type of embodiment for GCR. Adding on, at a high level, I do think Web 3.0 or crypto um, focuses on the idea of decentralization without a middleman. And it's quite interesting concept where theoretically everything will happen peer-to-peer -peer or centered around the community of people. And the blockchain technology behind Web 3.0 that can scale and process transactions at an incredible speed is also an very exciting technology to follow. And I think overall, the crypto community has been very passionate and full of talented young people, which is quite exciting part of the community to be part of. So past few months since I started crypto career has been very rewarding. Yeah, I think the nomenclature around describing crypto is super fascinating because Web3, I think of it as like a brilliant marketing move that really emerged over the past year. It really brought on a ton of traditional tech folks into crypto because it, it rebranded crypto, not as this shady internet money thing, but as a continuation of traditional tech from web one to web two to web three. And so just to take a step back, like I, you can call it whatever you'd like. You can call it web three, you can call it crypto, you can call it blockchain, you can call it decentralized technologies, distributed ledger technology, DLT, to throw back to 2017. But I think at the end of the day, what all of this refers to is, in my mind, a foundational technology shift that's ushering in a massive wave of decentralization. And again, you can pick your term for it, but that's ultimately what's going on. Thank you everyone for providing what we think Web3 currently is because it's still evolving day to day. I hear different things on different days. But I think one of the interesting things to also start off is I would need your help to offer some quick explanations on some following terms that all of us hear every day. For example, decentralized finance or what people call DeFi, non-fungible tokens or NFTs, zero knowledge proofs, uh, ZKP, rollups, 
layer two on RAM and off RAM. I think this probably uh, warrants a lot of terms in France. So I'm going to first split it up. Maybe Joyce, can you explain what decentralized finance and NFTs are? Yeah, for sure. For decentralized finance, as the name says, it's essentially leveraging blockchain technology to create and rebuild the existing financial primitives without central parties. So this is important, as now in the blockchain world, all rules are coded in a smart contract, and they're mostly transparent. And the goal is that no central party or single person can tamper with the code and the rules. NFT stands for non-fungible tokens. I think to put it simply, it's really simply a piece of smart contract code on the blockchain. But what's happened to it over time that we've seen in culturally is that the most popular applications right now is using NFTs to represent unique digital content or media. Jin, what about you? What is zero knowledge proof or rollups? That's going to take some lots of explanation, but I, I'll try to distill it in a very simple way. So zero knowledge proof is uh, think of it as a, it's a method by which one party can prove to another party that a statement is true without you know revealing anything about the statement besides that it is true. So the main reason why this new cryptography got so much traction lately in the crypto world is that you can validate a lot of crypto transactions in a blockchain in a very safe and a secure way. So obviously the advantages are clear where a lot of transactions currently in crypto are very transparent and open. While in using zero knowledge proof, you can actually process transactions in a private, secure way. And obviously if you go deeper into zero knowledge proof, there are two different types of zero knowledge, like interactive versus non-interactive zero knowledge proof. What that simply means is that an interactive zero knowledge proof Prover and a verifier has to interact with each other, which needs to complete, meaning a prover, the one who has to prove that a certain statement is true, has to complete certain steps to get there. While the non-interactive steps, like ZK Snark or other terms you might have seen, like Stark, requires no interaction. So you can actually theoretically have a zero-knowledge proof where there's no back and forth between the prover and verifier. It will be much quick, quicker, and the transactions that you will be processing will be in a shorter, more efficient proof that can go from prover to verifier in a much more efficient way that we haven't seen in crypto to date. So these, obviously, this zero-knowledge proof is very common in rollups and uh, layer two solutions that we have been seeing. And of course, that comes to the last three terms, layer two on-ram and off-ram. Uh, I think, Daniel, you have some idea on how to define those terms as well. Definitely. Yeah, the easiest way I think about layer two is that it's a scaling solution for existing layer one projects. So a lot of the layer one projects that we've heard about, like Ethereum, Solana, Near, I mean, the list goes on and on. They have a certain amount of throughput or number of transactions that they can process per second. But let's take Ethereum, for example. Ethereum even though it's quite decentralized, isn't that fast. And so the simplest analogy that I have for it is something like a Honda Civic. Let's say it goes at 60 miles per hour, but you want it to go at 200 miles per hour. The only way you can do that is by equipping it with like a turbo engine that just supercharges the underlying frame. And so you can think of the Honda Civic as Ethereum, the layer one, and you can think of the super turbo engine that you put on top of it as the layer two to make the underlying layer one so much faster. And there's so many awesome solutions out there pioneering that. The two other things that Bernard brought up were 
on-ramps and off-ramps. I mean, that's pretty self-explanatory. Basically, these are tools or applications that bring crypt people into crypto. So that's the on-ramp. And once people play around in crypto with NFTs, DeFi, GameFi, what have you, and they want to return to the centralized fiat world, that's an off-ramp. And so you can provide tools for either entry and exit points, or you can also provide amazing killer decentralized applications or dApps that bring people into crypto. And I would consider that an on-ramp as well. Okay. Thank you for defining all these terms. And I know some of these things will be very, very complex to everyone out there. But maybe the easiest way to start off this conversation, and any one of you can start on this, what is the major difference between Web2 and Web3 companies? I mean, just taking a step back, given my experience in traditional finance and now in Web3 crypto, what I've seen as the biggest differences between Web2 and Web3 companies is it's in the fundamental incentive design. So for a lot of Web2 companies, the way they incentivize employees, and shareholders and just people in their overall ecosystem is through equity, which is a residual claim on cash flows after debts are paid out. That's a clunky technical definition, but that is what it is. Whereas in Web3 companies, the key incentive mechanism is tokens, which I think of as ownership stakes in the underlying network. And so even though it's easy to bifurcate these two different types of companies with their different incentive mechanisms, Again, if you take another step back, they're not so different after all, because a lot of Web2 companies have similar characteristics as their Web3 counterparts. And one example that I like to bring up is a company like Red Bull. If you really think about Red Bull, it's, it's a marketing company with an amazing brand, like the crazy sports stunts that they do, their awesome commercials. It's fundamentally a marketing company. That's where all of their dollars are poured into. And one way to think about Red Bull is that it's a marketing company with just this funny drink that's simply a way to capture value from people who are in love with the brand. And so in this case, I, I wouldn't think of Red Bull as a traditional company, but actually very much like a network where you have this product that captures value within the network. You distribute it you know, through cash flows to equity and debt holders. And then boom, you have this traditional Web2 structure, let's call it. In the crypto world, you can create the same, the same Red Bull product. It's just that you can do away with the drink in some sense. You can just have this amazing brand with this amazing marketing team. And instead of being forced to create a drink to capture the value of it, you can actually just have people buy tokens in the underlying network value. And so this is just one example that I like to use to illustrate the difference between the different incentive mechanisms. But fundamentally, tokens, equity, whichever way you want to slice it, they're just different ways of understanding and encapsulating value in an underlying network. And that, that's really the, the key difference, as I see it, between Web2 and Web3 companies. What are the key applications of Web3? For example, we think about DeFi, NFTs, and blockchain protocols. Maybe, Jin, you can talk a little bit about that. So there are obviously numerous key applications that are being built on Web 3.0. And that's all possible due to smart contracts, which allows transactions to be permissionless and trustless, allowing decentralization of an application and a usage and also efficiency. So let's take you know one by one. And DeFi, clear examples are decentralized exchanges where there's no market maker or like a middleman. Like think of a stock exchange or that NASDAQ who facilitate your transactions uh, as a middleman and they take commissions off of that or take a bid-ask spread or think of banks that play a 
a kind of custodial entity that facilitates the flow of money. Within DEX that we're seeing in crypto, an example is automated market maker who allows automated trading, processes all transactions automatically with a smart contract without relying on another party or a third party to process the transactions because they have a pool in place that would automatically satisfy both the bid, ask, from both the buying side and the selling side, right? And a common formula that we see is Uniswap, where they use a formula of X, Y equals K, where they have a constant variable where supply of X of crypto and supply of Y in another crypto will be balanced out by the certain constant and allow us automatic market making capabilities that's possible due to the smart contract underneath the decentralized exchange. In NFTs, which is a non-fungible tokens, I think it just presents a new paradigm of denoting what an ownership of certain unique items. I think it is very, very appealing to a lot of people that you can keep track of the owners and the idea of non-fungibility of NFTs, meaning it is a unique item that you own and that you can keep track of the owners throughout the NFT's history is very attractive. It's something that we just never had in place until now. So I think in essence, this Web 3.0 ecosystem we live in or Web 3.0 applications allows such decentralization and also efficiency and great record keeping because of the smart contract that we have seen in the space. So I want to just get into a little bit about what GCR does as well. So what are the areas of Web3 that GCR DAO invests into now? Web 3.0 is such a broad ecosystem. So as Global Coin Research GCR, we are a community-led investment platform. So in a way, we are a generalist because we will look at different areas for potential investment. To give you more examples, we invest across social tokens and other DAOs like Dystopia Labs, Coinvise, and in DeFi world, we've invested in players like Hedgy, Apollo DAO. And in the NFT side, we have invested in Endemic, which is an NFT marketplace platform, and also in gamings, such as Solchix and Solana. And lastly, another sector that we take a look at is quote-unquote quote infrastructure. What that means is we invest in Aurora, which is a, essentially a bridge that's a scaling solution that's built on your ecosystem. So in summary, yes, we are a generalist and we take a look at a lot of projects across different categories. And obviously we want to pick out an X amazing projects that will potentially become a leader in that space that they play in. So what are the most interesting investments you have made so far? Yeah, I could talk about a project that we recently saw. And I think to just add to on what Jin said before about how we incorporate Web3, I think if folks join our Discord, you'll see that even the sourcing process and the selecting and diligence process is very community-driven. In that, for example, when we bring a potential opportunity to the community, the community votes on whether they want to spend time actually meeting the founders. So imagine when you're actually joining uh, GCR and, and you're being presented, here are the opportunities. You decide on who you want to meet, and then we'll actually go meet them. And we go with majority decision for almost every crucial decision point when it comes to investing. It's actually relying on the community to do so. So that just allows a more engaged community, first of all, but also when you have a really high quality community, the bar is actually very, very high. So that actually does a lot of filtering for us when it comes to identifying projects that are the right type of fit. 
and, and that are really good quality ones from all over the different categories that we're looking at. So, so to go back to your question, Bernard, one of my personal excitement and focuses in the last uh, couple months has been in the carbon market space. So carbon credits, as folks know, many corporations and countries are focusing on the carbon emission space. And carbon credits has been a way historically for companies to purchase and offset their carbon emissions. What we're seeing in the market right now is that the carbon market space is growing at 50% year on year. It's a billion dollar market. And, but the problem is that there's a lot of opaque kind of opacity or opaqueness to the market. And also there's a lot of middlemen. So this is a type of market that's perfect for crypto and blockchain. So what we're seeing now is large funds like Unisquare Ventures leading and deploying lots of capital into this carbon space of this um, middle ground of developers and really passionate folks who are interested in the crypto, crypto and carbon space looking to really bring all these carbon offsets on-chain, which means that traditionally when you're uh, tracking these carbon offsets, it's through a registry and they're just a piece of information or a certificate, but now they're trying to bring them on-chain. And, and, and on-chain meaning putting on the blockchain, making it immutable, allowing it to be forever tracked. So what I'm particularly excited about is this particular company called C3, which is a carbon credit company. They are essentially building a bridge to help all these kind of Web2 companies that are creating or, or looking to purchase carbon credits and providing that bridge to allow them to purchase carbon credits on chain. So now instead of carbon credits that you're getting as a certificate, you're getting a carbon credit in the form of a token or a form of a NFT. This is something that's really, I think, very, very interesting. Lots of folks are looking at it in the market. And, and our, our, I think our community actually has done several of these investments. And it's just something that I think is uh, really, really interesting. Yeah. And for, for me, you know, instead of choosing a su- sector or subsector that I truly like, or I'm, I'm super excited, I chose a project called Good Ghosting, which was the first deal I led and sourced at GCR. The reason why I chose this to be the most interesting crypto project is essentially what it does is Good Ghosting kind of creates various savings pool for users by leveraging other DeFi platforms in crypto. So the whole idea is that they're trying to target users who are not crypto natives, any everyday user or like average Joe who wants to get a better savings rate than we see from JP Morgan, Citi, or Marcus that's offering maximum of maybe 1% or 2% per year. They believe that offering these saving pools by leveraging DeFi platforms will offer a higher interest rate than the traditional savings account. And the platform is essentially trying to lower the barriers to entry to crypto for these people. And I think the reason why I love the project is obviously it has a strong founding team, but also the fact that it's trying to bridge the gap between the world that we live in and crypto. And I think there have been a lot of concerns, I guess, about uh, how mass adoption might not happen. And I think Good Ghosting is an example of a great project that's trying to break that barriers to entry and bridge the gap and I think that's a way you can really make crypto more legitimized and more popular among people by allowing people to sign up to a platform easily and conveniently and see the benefits that crypto can offer that we cannot see in a traditional Web 2.0 world or the current world that we live in. So one of the things about crypto currently is about mass adoption, new users coming into the space. So in the Web 2 world, people talk about the cost of user acquisition. So if you think about mobile, you think about iOS and Android, and if you are a developer, you will 
go to either or. I mean, it used to be many. There is other operating systems like maybe people have already forgotten BlackBerry OS, Microsoft Mobile, and all the other operating systems. But eventually, it just went down to two. I think th there is this really interesting conversation that's been ongoing. I think since last a few months ago between Suzu and the Ethereum uh, community, and even with the other communities as well. One thing is that there is a choice of entering which blockchain protocol that you need to build on. So the first question I probably think about is in terms of thinking about user acquisition, does the choice of say Ethereum or think of an alternative layer one chain, a lot of people are very hyped about Solana, Avalanche, and even now we have layer two chains like Arbitrum, Optimistic and Polygon, but I consider Polygon a side chain. And recently, Polygon has just raised about 450 mil from Sequoia India leading the round. And I think Anderson Horowitz was, uh, and some other VC firms have actually done Solana as well. So do these choice actually have an impact to play, to earn games, DeFi applications or anything? I mean, for example, in Asia Pacific, I see a lot of deals focuses on adopting Polygon. And then there are some people are now beginning to warm up to Solana. And how is it like in the US for y'all? Yeah, this is a really interesting question. And I could give you guys a picture of how back in 2017, GCR threw an event at Ethereum Hackathon in Japan. And it was uh, literally all the founders of the aforementioned layer ones, Solana, Avalanche, and Nier. And we had several other chains that no longer really exist. But back then, no one really expected any of these chains or like maybe they expected one chain to survive. And then now looking back, it's like, darn, we should have invested in every one of them. Who knew they would all have succeeded, right? <laughs> it's, it's, it's honestly just like, I, I think for anyone who's been in the space for a long time, the amount of adoption on Solana, Avalanche, and Nier has all happened in the last, like really since 2021. And I think I may have a, I'm not sure if this is a controversial view, but honestly, at this point, the the Pandora's box is open where markets have recognized the potential of blockchain and every one of these layer ones are there to benefit because they are there considered early. And what they're equipped with now is millions of dollars in their treasury and the ecosystem funds that they need to deploy to start actually building an ecosystem. So in the long run, for me, I think every one of them are going to do very fine. It's like if you have these founders and if you recognize the founder is there for the long term, like Polygon, like Avalanche, like Near, these guys are supporting the ecosystem through their own funding. Now they're extra external venture capital coming in to support these projects in those ecosystems as well. So I honestly don't think you can go wrong for building on any of these chains. Like, and I, I think we see that from just talking to the founders directly. They're there, they're dedicated, and they want to disrupt and really create a space for themselves. So when it comes to a ecosystem uh, perspective for any of these chains, they're looking to deploy all their capital into P2E, their capital into DeFi, all of these really fast-growing segments in the crypto space. But in, in that perspective, it's actually taking more from the chain point of view. But let's say if I'm a startup and I just came out and I'm looking at all these chains, right? How do I make the rationalization on which chain should I focus on? Because the entry point is always important. I mean, we can do multiple things, but there's a tragedy of commons. There's just so much resources for so few things. 
So would you think that you should actually pick a chain and start first and then go around or eventually there's a multi, there's a bridge that can actually bridge these different protocols from one to the other. I wouldn't say there's going to be one bridge to rule them all, but you can think of a multi-chain world on that. Dan and Jen, feel free to chime in here. But in my opinion, we are seeing cross-chain solutions being developed right now. And that's definitely one of the going to be the key pieces in 2022 and 2023 when we see the rise of all these different projects and none of them are talking to each other. We can't even like see a dashboard of all our different wallets together in our treasury, for example, because there's no such tool to even have this cross-chain connection. But I think going back to your original question, Bernard, I think that oftentimes when a project chooses which chain to work with, it's often affiliated with a cultural and geographical affiliation or, or connection there. And that's not all the factors, but I'm just saying that's partially what we're seeing in terms of the factors. So to give you an example, the Polygon team is based and founded in India and Dubai. So they have a really solid India market where none of the other chains have ever even tried to go into because it's a very difficult market to go into, right? Versus I think Solana has attracted a really impressive group of people that are TradFi or folks who usually were not traditionally appealed with the Ethereum ethos, but the Solana energy and the technology itself has offered uh, an appealing solution for many innovators who want to build fast and build like very quick technologies to implement on the blockchain. So those are just separate examples, but I think what that means is that we'll see affiliations depending on where your friends goes and, and where your friend is building on and, and, and what your friend and friend's building on. So that viral effect, I think it matters a lot actually. Yeah, I completely agree with everything that Joyce said. It's, and on top of that, I think a lot of my developer friends, if they want to jump into the space, they look at the programming language, like Solidity, that obviously a lot of people use now for Ethereum and other chains, or Rust and Solana, right? A lot of people might be like, oh, Rust is a tougher language to pick up. I might do Solidity, given that there are more resources out there, and a lot of the codes are open source, like GitHub, et cetera. And it's, it's really interesting just to see that a lot of projects are established on Ethereum at the moment, and then that creates a feedback loop where more users come into the Ethereum platform, given that there are a lot of developers in the ecosystem. And that means there are a lot of codes, a lot of resources for a lot of people to leverage. So that creates a very interesting feedback loop that Joy says, like if your friends are working in that specific ecosystem, you're going to join the ecosystem because you already know your friends and have a network in that ecosystem to build your startup or your projects or applications. And hopefully, I think we're going to see more disruption from other L1s if they can prove to new developers or existing developers why they are better than the status quo options that they currently have. I and mean, obviously, at the moment, Ethereum has been dominating that in that instance, but we are seeing some market share being taken away by Polygon folks or near ecosystem, as Joy said. But I think Polygon is actually like a layer two to Ethereum. So I think it's exactly. fine, right? In, in yeah. that case, right? But then the layer twos is going to come online. Does that also mean that maybe Ethereum might even gain a bigger market share or maybe there's still room for all the odd L1 chains to still find their niches like Solana and Avalanche and even Neo as well? Honestly, if I knew the answer, like I would be a billionaire, but, like, uh, but joking aside, but I do think there is going to be a world where Specific L1 chains will have, will attract certain group of people, a certain group of applications, and other ones also will be unique for that reason. But per your point on L2, I've also heard an interesting opinion where if L2s are going to thrive and are going to be successful leveraging the security of Ethereum, 
and Ethereum 2.0 doesn't get rolled out in any time soon, theoretically, how do you value Ethereum as a crypto price? The gas fees are going to be lowered because L2s are able to process a lot of transactions at a much faster speed, which means that the gas fee that in a way drives the price of Ethereum will be lowered, not even half, it will be just minimal compared to the gas price we pay. Then in a way, Ethereum price, Ethereum might not be as precious or uh, valuable as we think. So a lot of people think like if L2s are to pro are to take over the world and become the platform or the uh, I don't know uh, chain for people to use, then Ethereum might lose their dominance. Is an in interesting takeaway that I've heard from other people. So. TBD, what's going to happen? But obviously, there are two ways, two schools of thoughts in that Ethereum does well, a lot of the L2s will prosper, thus the demand for Ethereum will go up, given that they are the backbone of all these ecosystems. But on the other side of the house, you have people who believe that if L2s dominate the world, gas fees that you eventually pay to Ethereum will be much lower, and then Ethereum might not be the dominant player that uh, we are currently seeing at the moment. Yeah, and just to chime in on that, Joyce, I love your description about the different L1s kind of occupying different geographical areas. Like when I think about these L1s and L2s, like the best visualization for me is to compare them to actual cities. And so if we were to compare Ethereum to New York, not, the, not all the five boroughs, but the city itself, New York City, Manhattan, you, know, you can maybe say that Polygon is something like Brooklyn, and you have a bunch of L2 scaling solutions, and that's like Queens and Harlem and Staten Island, et cetera, et cetera. Like, sure. Between Polygon and Optimism, people might move between those two ecosystems. But do those ecosystems, do their very existence, drive value to the mothership, which in this case would be Ethereum, or in my geographic example, Manhattan? The jury's still out. I, I live in New York right now. A lot of people are leaving Manhattan for Brooklyn. And so who knows? Maybe Polygon becomes bigger than Ethereum. I don't even know what that role would look like. But like in, in this comparison, if you think about it from a geographical perspective, it's not as zero-sum as some people might think. If you think about the entire city's network, it's all very additive if you believe in the future growth of these crypto networks. Now, in a zero-sum declining environment, that's when the value breaks. And that's when I think people are thinking more about where the value and the, the projects are going between the L1s and L2s. But for now, as all these projects are growing, I think they're all very additive and contributing to each other's successes. As a New Yorker, Dan, I have to tell you that New York City includes all five boroughs and not just Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> I had to correct you there. <laughs> but yes, I agree. I, I think this is going to be a continuous conversation that's going to be ongoing. And I think this choice about different chains is, is still going to be something that we will discuss even in a year or two years time. But I wanted to zoom back into the concept of DAO. One thing that I really think about a lot is how does the DAO work as compared to the private company or uh, private limited? Because I, that also has some impact to how we think about financing for Web2 and Web3 projects. I guess my question to all of you here is, are there differences in how the DAO gets governed? And also, do we think of DAOs as economies when we value them? Yeah, I can maybe speak to the first point about how DAO work is quite different from traditional Web2 work. And so I come from the traditional finance world, spent about five years there. And what I noticed in these big investment banks and private equity firms is a very centralized hierarchy. And this is changing a little more these days, but a lot of people work at one company for life. They collect their pension, they collect their benefits, and that's the one thing that they do for 25, 30 years. 
I think in the past 10 to 20 years, with the advent of the internet, a lot of people have started switching jobs more quickly. And so instead of doing one job, they do five or maybe 10 in their 25, 30 year career. And I think what we're seeing now with Dow work is not only are people switching jobs more frequently, but they can also hold multiple jobs at the same time. And I joke about this with some of my friends, but what DAOs allow is something like polyamory, but for work. You can date around many different DAOs at the same time and collect salaries and tokens or stable coins, equity, whatever the case might be from many different sources. If you have a specialized skill set that can plug and play into each one of them. And so I really think this is the future of work where it becomes much more flexible and much more modular. And it's not so much that people have to force themselves into this model to work for DAOs. I think it's actually quite the other way around, where people want to work this way, especially with COVID and a ton more flexibility around where they can work and who, with whom they can work. DAOs are simply a new corporate or entity structure that allows the new form of work and unlocks this opportunity for a lot of people. But you think about DAOs as contribution to the DAO, right? I, I've seen a lot of some people actually what community managers of different protocols taking one job across different protocols. Then the, the interesting part is what happens if the protocol starts to compete against itself? So in the polyamorous situation, are we going to like end up in such a, you know, like, hey, where, your, where do your loyalties lie? That is something that made me try to stretch the concept a little bit to, to the extreme to see what could be the implications of how we think about the future of work. Yeah, that's super interesting. I think just from GCR's perspective, for example, our core team members who are paying full time, some of them have full time jobs elsewhere. And they're working as a marketing person for us, but they're also working as a marketing person for the other job. And somehow I think what we learned is that there's a lot of synergies and it's actually worked out pretty well. So, so I think that's, that's also partially part of our ethos, but I think also applies widely to the other Web3 projects overall is that as long as you do your work, it doesn't matter when you do your work, how you do your work, you just get your work done. And part of that also is how decisions are made, which is that generally it's made with the voting of the teams deciding on what should we process and prioritize on the larger level. How are we voting towards the next step for the entire treasury or the actual project itself? That's a very good point. And that comes to the ways of financing Web3 projects, right? There are currently three models. If you go into investing in Web3, you can think of companies in three ways or DAOs in three ways. First, you invest them as full equity, like a normal private limited company. Second is you take a mixture of equity and tokens, or then if you can go full tokens. The question I probably want to ask all of you here is, which model do you think that startup founders in this space should move towards, or does it really depend on the project itself? Like, for example, if I look at a company, say like Nansen AI, who builds analytics to monitor NFT and blockchain, DeFi protocols, they are more suitable for equity structure. Or again, you think about something like XA Infinity, you would think of it more like a full token structure or maybe it can even be a mixture of both. So where does the startup founder try to find the right financing model for themselves? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And it really depends on the company, to your point, Bernard. I think over time, what we'll see is a shift more towards token models. But from GCR's perspective, we've invested in companies with full-on equity, equity with like a side warrant for tokens later, and also full-on token projects. The holy grail for me is a token project where the token really, really makes sense, which is to say that it doesn't matter which of those three options you take, 
as long as you're very thoughtful about it. And I guess my high level take on that would be a lot of equity companies that I've seen, for some of them, it really makes sense where it's more of a platform that spins out many projects underneath it, which can be, you know, based on equity and or tokens. That's TBD, but ultimately it's a platform. And for me, I can see an equity model making sense for that. But what I've also seen is, is a lot of Web2 or traditional finance folks just dipping their toe in the crypto Web3 space, too afraid to go into the full-on Web3 token model, even though it, it might make more sense. And so you see both sides to the full-on equity model. Which is interesting because in Asia Pacific, when I started investing, there are some companies that are full token models. In order to appeal to uh, in traditional investors, they are probably not as sophisticated, right? They try to impose equity model onto a Web3 company, which actually should have just do it in full token model. I, I think there lies this spectrum. And how do you think about where should it go when you invest in it? Do you actually also talk to the founders to actually help them to rationalize which is the model for them? I, I could quickly add on to that. I think Daniel has laid out a great framework for them to think about it. I think mastering a tokenomics is quite a difficult task because once you set the tokenomics, once you set that in stone, you cannot change it. Meaning if you want to potentially raise a future round, you can't because you already said you're only going to dedicate 20% of your tokens to investors. Once you have already sold them, you cannot raise more from investors. Now you got to go to the public. But if you theoretically have already raised to public, you can't raise more financing. By that time, then you need to bootstrap your project, even after going quote-unquote public. So I think like a lot of founders who are thoughtful about where they see their projects going and figure out their business model to be self-sufficient, then token model works. But a lot of projects who have not figured out the tokenomics yet, but they are bullish about the business model that they have figured out at the moment, they just raise an equity round and then have a token warrant to allow more distribution of tokens to users and people versus, you know, typical criticism we see in traditional finance where most of the you know, equity is owned by the institution, institutional investors and the insiders. So I think it really depends on the sophistication of the founding team and where the project is headed. Because a lot of times once you sold your tokens, you can't really go out and raise more. And I think that just sends a very negative signal about the project, which a lot of founders obviously do not want to take. Yeah, or you end up in these big debates about who owns Web3, right? Between the VCs and even the different decentralized projects where they insist that they want to be owned by the community. That also has some impact on the valuation of Web3 companies as well. So I have a way of thinking about it is, I try to think of some Web3 projects, not as just companies, but as economies. I think if you think about Axie Infinity, it's very difficult to think of it as a, investing them as a company, but you, you think of them as an economy because there are players, there's a community built around it, etc., etc. Maybe it's a good example, but a bad example, but there are examples of things that would look like economies. That's why the commands... That's why a lot of people suddenly get a big shock. Why, why suddenly this company is worth so much and, and, and so many hundred million of dollars is actually thrown into a Web3 project. And I think that even for investors, I think we struggle a lot about thinking of companies as economies. Surprisingly, even though they are trained in thinking about the unit economics and even in Web3 where we have uh, tokenomics, which is thinking about the incentives, the game theory, and the way how the governance is structured plays into how they actually get the 
funds into their treasury. How you value a company in Web 3.0 depends on the project nature. As you said, I think of Ethereum or L1 protocols are pro providing an ecosystem, some form of quote unquote economy where it is hard to value them on a cash flow or traditional valuation methodology that we currently use for public companies or private companies. Or similarly, as you said, like Axie Infinity or other social communities that you see where the brand value and the community behind it is valuable. It's an intangible asset that is hard to value given that this is a very new sector and there's no methodology to value them. I, I make a comparison between these projects with social media players in the early days where before they actually made money or monetized the data and the user base, people were basically valuing them based on daily active users, monthly active users, or time spent on apps. And I think that's pretty similar framework that you can use for a lot of these projects that are focused on building a community and a user base that they currently have. Because if you have a large, sticky user base, at the end of the day, that in itself can create an economy that can generate quote-unquote revenue or cash flow to the parent company or, I guess, an entity that sits on top of the project. But also, we have platforms like OpenSea or other NFT marketplaces where they take certain commission percentage on each transaction and volume, and we can value them on a clear revenue or cash flow that they generate, right? It's essentially like you can value them like a traditional fintech company by predicting and measuring what the trading volume will be, and you just backtrack what the commission that they take to predict revenue for next year or next two, three years, because you can predict where the NFT volume, for instance, would trade in 2023 and 2024. So I, I view the method, uh, valuation methodology to be flexible in Web 3.0, which is a very interesting exercise. It's interesting that you mentioned that because I looked at also the tokenomics of the DAO or the company that I invest in. What are the key indicators that you look into when you see a tokenomics of a, of a company? Is it in terms of how they split the treasury? Is it the game theory part where how do they incentivize the community to build something around it? Or is it just how they get the consensus to work such that it creates a, a self-sustaining economy itself? I think some of the simple things to look for for sure is the vesting period of the team and the cliff for the token for the team and whether they're holding onto the token longer than their typical investors as well as the community. That That's pretty straightforward and I think this requires more work which is that you probably should look for how the tokens are accruing value and that could mean governance value if you think this is a very strong, robust community and that they'll really want to have a say in the future of the project. So in that sense, the token will recruit value because of the community factor and the community will all want to acquire these tokens to make a decision, right? And, and that's maybe for a DAO, but for other types of tokens, it's going to be how are they creating tangible or intangible value in that sense. So it's going to be from the transaction fees on exchanges or from API calls or whatnot. Yeah, and to add on to Joyce's point, I think an interesting stat to back up the claim that she mentioned, we actually did an interesting exercise a few weeks ago on CoinGecko where we took a look at all the liquid quote-unquote tokens that are trading, where there are obviously over 12,000 tokens that are available in the market where you can theoretically buy them, right? And out of that, only about 200 tokens have a quote-unquote market cap of over $300 million dollars and about 160 tokens have over a market cap of $400 million. And the figure that we use as a unicorn is a billion dollars, right? And there are only about 90 tokens out of over 12,000 tokens. Essentially, 
what that means is that about less than a percentage of token or crypto projects that we see will become a unicorn status. So I think this tokenomics that Joyce has mentioned really is hard to nail correctly to for you to scale to that level. And also per our point on how to value them, a lot of these tokens that token projects we see are economy. So clearly there's going to be a refinement of how people value them, given that a lot of projects that have stayed above a certain threshold of market cap is able to do that because I think people have accepted that it is an economy and you can value them based on number of developers, number of applications that are being built on it. For that reason, they do command, let's say, a billion dollar plus valuation for that reason. Another stat that people also use, obviously, is total value locked for certain L1s, which is a crucial factor you have to consider when you want to value these crypto projects or L1 chains. It's interesting you pointed your analysis on all the, the top projects within the unicorn valuation. But if you think about it, right, we are actually pretty early at this stage because a lot of the crypto projects, if you think about it, you should value them as economies rather than companies. So wouldn't the definition of unicorn change into something that you have to be a trillion dollar in order to be called a unicorn in Web3 rather than thinking about the billion because that is a more equity way of thinking about it. Because some people always tell me maybe I'm too late into Web3 and I'm like, no, the market is always ready where you are. I mean, I think Mark Andreessen famously said he thought that there's nothing to do when he was building the web browser, right? So if you think about the order of magnitude today, wouldn't that also tell you that that is... Still very far away. Yeah, I mean, I want to hear what everyone else has to say, but I thought I was joining this space late when I joined it late last year. As Joyce said, in 2017, everyone from blockchain or L1 ecosystem were friends, right? They were hanging out together. Now they've become a legitimized platform, a project where they have become almost siloed, right? Like I thought I was already late. Oh man, like they're trading at a certain value. There's, I don't think there's an upside, but after joining the space, if these L1 ecosystems thrive to become the actual platform, the backend infrastructure for all these applications and projects that we see, we are so early. Like, I think another interesting stat that I saw was that there are about 70 million unique wallets that hold more than zero Ethereum. And if you do just a quick back math, that's like less than a percentage of a world population. So if your bet is that if blockchain just scrapes like a 10% market, or 10% of people in the world use it or buy some form of crypto, that means we, are, we have 10 times more runway to go. So that means you're still early. Think of it as like a startup you join. Like if you theoretically join this world, there's 10x upside that you can go for. Yeah, it's so, a super cycle, right? <laughs> yeah, it is a super cycle. <laughs> Just hold it up for a moment. I mean, Joyce, you were in this space much, much earlier and you see the evolution from the crypto winter to now, and then there was a crypto crash a month ago, but this has since recovered. Do you feel that it's still evolving or it just keep changing and then you just have to continue? Because I know I've heard of DeFi founders retiring within like one and a half years because it's just too much for them. And then they keep looking for the next project to do. Is that true? One thing you learn over these bulls and bears is that it's just, it's very normal and that you just need to have a higher bearings for these type of volatility versus traditional finance world or other types of markets. Ultimately, it's not often that you see so many projects at such early stages with a token price that's running up 50% up and down every day. So this is a new mental challenge for all investing type of personnel, I think, actually, because 
you have to literally think from a venture capital and a hedge fund perspective constantly. What we learned, I mean, what I learned, I think, is just being optimistic and being able to really identify and be recognize that nothing isn't impossible. It's like, I think what I learned from especially investing and seeing these super cycles is identifying the type of founders that are resilient and that actually matters more than your talent or your skill set, but it's resiliency. It's about like how passionate you are in the space, how long you have been in the space and how long you plan to be in it. That matters to me more so than like actually, I think like your background, but it's like, are you going to be here in another year or are you going to just like either make a lot of money uh, some way or another through NFT flipping or DeFi degening and leave? Or are you going to leave because this space is not moving fast enough for you because there's actually still a lot of tools that needs to be built? As a Gen X, uh, I have friends who are all in the fixed income side of derivatives of investment banks asking me when we were trying to ask you to join us in the investment bank, why you didn't do it. And now you're like totally into crypto. And then my answer to them is this is a once in a lifetime alpha market. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, because their lives is revolving around moving that 0.01 to 0.1 basis points. Yeah, yeah. Where in crypto, you're dealing with like 20, 30x at any one time, depending on whether you're on the bull or the bear cycle. So hmm, how should I explain it to you? Maybe it's the alpha. <laughs> Yeah, I see exactly what you're saying. Yeah, I, I, I think this is this is something that's really gets to the core of this interview, which is that what do we need to do to really convince the opportunities here that we have in this space to the folks who are still in Web3? And I, I think Jin and Dan, I think, really made smart moves and I really identify the potential when they're young. And I think this is something that's super important for all young people. And now we're seeing that young entrepreneurs looking to just build DAOs and build Web3 companies directly, right? By skipping college and going direct there instead of applying for a YC type of even track. But it's, it's like, you look at the impact that you're making, I think it really appeals to startup people. That's what I realized. It's like, it doesn't appeal to finance people and they're very skeptical, even though you tell them, hey, we have like amazing returns that you'll never see in the hedge fund world at this current market, but they don't care. We're grabbing onto like what we believe the most or what we are most comfortable with. But it's like the startup people that are really, really gone ho entrepreneurial, very interested in building something new that really appeals to them. Mm, and the thrill of actually meeting young people and learning from them. That's basically what I get from investing in Web3. I, I think all the alphas and whatever, but it's meeting the people. Yeah. Even yeah. learning from you all, right? Like I, I, I go into your calls and then I just listen and, and just trying to understand the space better. So let me just ask another interesting question because I think Daniel, Jin and Joyce, you all have covered so many Web3 deals globally, right? Do you see any differences in Web3 deals in Asia Pacific versus in US and in Europe? To that question, I would say not really, but that's a good thing. That means we are seeing talents across the world, which is always an exciting thing. It makes this specific space so fascinating to be in. For instance, like I'm based in the US, so like I will be talking to founders around the clock because I wake up and I'll be talking to European founders uh, in the morning and at night I'll be talking to founders in Asia. Like it's a very interesting dynamic that we see in this world where you don't see that in traditional finance or other startups or any other world. I do think though, like I think given the regulatory restrictions in the US, we do tend to see more innovative projects that are based outside of the US at the moment. And it, it could be a lot of United States nationals or smart people from the US just leaving the US for that reason, just to try out cool ideas and build them without any restrictions of the SEC or the US government. So for that reason, 
Yes, a lot of projects that we see across Asia and Europe have been more adventurous or innovative. I, I had this interesting experience in Southeast Asia where people are asking me about doing web reviews, and then like even like very well known VCs totally miss out certain things, and then when they start questioning about the web reviews, then I ask them, why is it that we missed out Axie Infinity, which is based in Vietnam? Why did you base in Philippines? And even like you have no idea what Nansen AI do. They're based in Singapore too. And then they are like, oh, you know, <laughs> it's so interesting. I, I think in the in the previous era of crypto, you used to see Asia companies, uh, or just any non US outside folks having a more localized version or a more geographically specific version of the US counterpart to them. So it's like the cream to the compound. Or a, a replica of some Uniswap, right, in, in in Asia, with some more Asian tastes to it. But I think now you're seeing with gaming unlocking a lot of those opportunities globally. And Nansen, I, I do agree, they're based in Singapore, I, but I think it's a European team. Yeah. So I think they moved to Singapore. <laughs> I mean, Singapore just has a lot of. I mean, I have to agree, Singapore houses a lot of wonderful entrepreneurs like CZ and I mean, maybe not CZ anymore, but. Arthur Hayes and all those guys. Suzu, um, SL, the Three Arrows guys. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. We thank the, the Singapore regular MAS for all of those nice founders and, and, and entrepreneurs there. But I think now what we've seen is, I think for YGG, I really often found it to be such an exception because they were able to contextualize YGG and create that market fit for the Filipino local citizens and then leverage that to build out an entire like ecosystem for play to earn. Now applying it to Southeast Asia, applying it to Latin America, and literally creating YGG for each of those sub-DAOs for each of those regions, right? But even venture funds in regional plays are now finding difficulty with crypto because crypto is global. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I think that's, that's something that's a challenge for Western folks for sure because I feel like they used to be so Western-centric and only looked into the US founders. But the really edge that you have here for any entrepreneurs and founders is be as global as possible. But I do think that you really need someone, though, as in the founding team to be very clear communicator who speaks very good English or like just a clear communicator with the English language. That matters a lot, actually. That's what I've seen with successes with Eastern projects with founders like those. I, I'm curious here then. I think we talk a lot about the deals, the tokenomics. I think one very key feature within a Web3 company is about governance. So how do we now think about governance for a Web3 company from the point of view of a DAO company? You guys are a very good example. You have a DAO. So how do you think about the role of governance? Because that is basically how this organization actually from managing treasury, from managing what are the things that we're going to do, what are the things we're going to focus on and what are the things we do not focus on. And when there's a conflict that happens, let's say where maybe something within the economy is not aligning with its values, then we come up with proposals to say, we want to change this. And then we need everyone to agree to change this. How do you think about governance from that point of view? Yeah, governance right now in Web3 is, is a hot topic mainly because it's very intellectual, it's very theoretical, but when you actually apply it uh, in practice, it ends up looking so different across all different DAOs. And so as like a unifying principle, I like to think of governance uh, as really pushing decentralization in decision-making. And this can happen in Web2 companies and also Web3 companies. Like I I often think of the best Web2 companies like Amazon with very decentralized decision-making, 
as fundamentally like a decentralized organization. I mean, apart from Jeff Bezos, I guess. And you can also even think of the United States, right, with its 50 states and its governors and its different legislative units as a decentralized nation where you just swap out the president every four years. And so it's not strictly a Web3 versus Web2 sort of thing. I think it's really just by default, Web3 companies have decentralization at their core to empower decentralized decision making. Whereas by default, Web2 companies are not that way, but the best ones try to become more de decentralized in their decision making over time. And so what I see as the burden for DAOs is to really reduce like the barriers or like the frictions for decentralized decision making. Because I genuinely believe that, and this is the case of GCR and also I'm sure many other DAOs, like the best insights come from the bottom up. I mean, we just discussed that crypto is very global. I'm based out of New York. I only know physically the Eastern hemisphere, but we have contributors from Scotland, from Kosovo, from Spain, from the Philippines, from Switzerland, like from all over the world who are plugging into their respective ecosystems and bringing to GCR the best deals that they find on the ground. And so the question for me is how do you reduce those frictions for those folks to bring the best decisions and the best deals forward when traditional companies, though they can try, just don't have the infrastructure for that. And this is not to say that we just have a couple tools like Snapshot, some Discord voting here and there. Like this needs to be more of like a cultural tone shift where everybody is aligned towards that way. And then you enable tools to further the acceleration of decentralized decision-making. But I will say that it's a very hard thing because you can't force people to just day one, take ownership over all of their tasks. Some people um, fit better in like a centralized mold, but for those who want to iterate super fast and have a, a ton of decision-making early on, for those people, DAOs are the right places to be. And our job is to enable them mm. with the right tools. And of course, the incentive side, we think about tokens as part of the DAO itself. So let's say when I invest in a project, then it goes through a token generation event. So I get tokens, correct? It's too early because usually companies evolve and then they got into a more stable state. They become public companies. Then you know how to associate value with them getting this value so early because the community is still evolving. What does that mean? And so I had, I had this thesis that for even angel investors now, we cannot just think about just investing in the DAO as well. We need to partake in the community and help with a little bit with thinking about the governance. But the second thing is that because we invest in so many companies, we need to think about how to manage that treasury ourselves, our own treasury, because we also have people who might invest in us and then we have to help them with it. I think similar in your case as well, right? So how do you rationalize that price of the token to whoever has invested in you? How do you explain that value? That is a pretty important question. Whether you are a web two, three angel investor now, it will become something that's of much more important value later. Yeah, from the GCR's point of view, I think, the token is our membership token. So what that means is our members need to be able to acquire the token. And then with the token, they're able to join our community on Discord. So there's like a mechanism or a bot that they connect their wallet to with the token holdings in the wallet. And this is actually a very interesting question because for us, we've been constantly thinking about how do we provide the best type of stable mechanism in where when a member buys 100 GCR tokens, how do we make it less friction for the next member to buy without having the price of the token to go up too much? 
So if you think about it that way, the GCR token is something where we're actually trying to promote as much stability as possible instead of actually thinking about how do we maximize the value and get the token to price to be 10x returns for our, for our investors, which matters a lot and we prioritize a lot as, as well, but it also matters that the experience of our members is seamless. So yeah, you're spot on on that. That is the exact point I'm trying to make because different DAOs have different ways of incentivize their community. And you have brought a very good example in your own case that you are focusing the token price to be stable. So you won't see a lot of fluctuations going there. But then for a lot of other projects, you may see a lot of fluctuations of volatility. I'll just give you a very good example. Like Avocado Dow recently, they did an auction in copper, they raised, and then suddenly because of the crash, the value goes down, but now it's recovering. But what is that value when you make that purchase into it? And I think a lot of uh, investors coming into Web3 do not think about this at all. Mm-hmm, they they get the tokens yeah. and then they are just thinking, okay, when is the best price I liquidate? Yeah, yeah I yeah. think the the Web three angel investor, and this is a thesis I have at the moment, is that essentially what will happen is that there will be Web three investors thinking about how do I manage my treasury, and then I might build these tools and people understood how I managed it, and essentially we end up helping each other is the idea. But I think about there would be a situation where someone would just do this treasury management. For all these angel investors, like think of a decentralized BlackRock, for example, or even more, even for institution funds, because understanding of value of that token when you receive it is pretty important. And I think a lot of investors coming in just thinking of a quick, but you know, oh, you see the token move up 10, 10x, I'm selling it out. Or people say, you know, pump and dump. But okay, maybe coming back to this point, right? I think Joyce, you have seen this crypto winter. There's a lot of movements now from tech companies into Web3 recently. I actually have a couple of colleagues from Amazon who's working on AI and now into Web3 in Silicon Valley. So is this period really similar to how it's like the period, the ICO boom era before the crypto winter? Yeah, I think we're definitely seeing, compared to that period, we're seeing an influx at a significantly higher pace, a faster pace. The difference there is that now we have all these different chains like Solana and Avalanche and Near that's already very well built and documented with basically a better infrastructure support for newcomers to come in than Ethereum was in 2017. Right? And Ethereum was really the only tool that was. And, and I think what we're seeing now is that like many of the projects, I, I would say about a third of the projects I've been investing in are folks who really have no experience in crypto, but they're so hungry and they're coming from like Flexport, Facebook, Zynga, many of these large and startup companies looking to build something and and they actually are able to build something very quickly in this three to six month time period. And that was never possible in 2017. It really took you a long time to really have the context, learn solidity, and then also be able to like pitch yourself and convince people that you are able to stay in this space. And there's a lot, obviously a lot of success skepticism from the traditional tech folks back in the day as well. So I, I think we're, we're seeing a wave that's really different where there's a lot of sophisticated folks like Dan and Jin from the finance world, developers from the traditional tech world. And also this is something that I really also enjoy really meeting just really young founders who have huge ambitions on what Web3 could look like. And it's something that for me and like an old jaded so for in crypto may not be able to see anymore. And that's really important. And that's something that I find really, really exhilarating. <laughs> she's not jaded or she's Crypt- not Crypto has aged me. Crypto has aged me. I've grown decades in the last few years. 
I think people join and leave crypto in like in waves. Thinking back to 2017, I, I had a bunch of friends like leave traditional finance jobs and like fame companies to join crypto companies. But then that was a brutal bear market for what, three, four years. And in that time, they, they, they tapped out and then they rejoined their traditional finance companies or they rejoined their you know fame companies. And then now they're trying to jump back in. Right. Talk about buying high and selling low. And so you can do it with securities or token investments, but you can also do it with your career, where if you time things just right, things can really work out or not. And I wish for people who had joined in 2017, making that first jump, like they had stuck it out through the bear market because then they would have reaped all the benefits in the in the bear in the bull market over the past couple of years. And so, again, I'm a new entry, but I've been following the space for quite some time and uh, just seeing like the lessons from the cycles. It's, uh, it's interesting to learn. Yeah, I mean, like I think both Dane and Joyce like had a great point about the question. And I think one thing I just want to add is when we did a fireside chat with Bobby Ong from CoinGecko, he did say that this quote-unquote bear market that we're seeing past two months is nothing compared to what he experienced himself past few years ago during 2017 and 2018. And he said like this is actually the best time for builders to build what they are good at because there's no noise. Like they can just focus on what they want to build given that usually in a super cycle or a bull market, like there are a lot of noise out there for the founders and they lose their vision and then they just chase money. So I think it's a great way to filter out founders or builders who are actually dedicated to the mission versus mercenaries. So it's actually an interesting time where we're seeing a lot of smart projects still raising money, even in this quote unquote bear market that people are calling it. It seems to be going back to a bull market again very, very quickly. That's the nature of crypto cycles. I see a lot of deals recently in, in the Asia Pack space, and I find that the prevailing pitch I've been getting from a lot of Web2 people going into Web3 is to bring the Web2 interface UI or mass appeal into Web3 and helping people to on-ramp as well. But then the thing that I always find these pictures very unconvincing is that the best Web3 applications are totally not Web2. If you look at DeFi, if you look at play-to-earn games, they are totally different. So this whole Web2 to Web3 to me is a little bit not satisfying. I mean, what are your thoughts thinking about when startup founders come to you and say, hey, we want to slap a Web2 view into Web3? I think it's actually, they're being smart about it. I think I understand the ethos of, hey, like let's just revolutionize how you build a product or write codes by not following the playbook of Web 2.0. But I think that's just, that's actually immature in a way. Like I think, like for instance, like UX UI design has been a crucial aspect of Web 2.0 applications, right? It's very simple to use the these applications that we use and are tied to basically. And I don't think Web 3.0 honestly has mastered it yet, right? It's hard to use the platforms, DeFi, gaming. Like for instance, like a lot of play to earn games that you see in Web 3.0 is actually really not that fun to play. It's not entertaining like the games that we've played when we were kids or even now. I think the reason why it's not pleasing to the eyes is because they try to build a product that's contrary to how Web 2.0 product is built and how much priority that the founders put on UX UI because you need a lot of mass adoption for projects or applications to be successful. And I do think Web 2.0 playbook should definitely be leveraged by these entrepreneurs in Web 2.0. And I think we are seeing a shift in that way where you know we are now seeing new Web 3.0 products or play to earn games that are now much more fun to play versus like last year when play to earn games became a thing. It was just a very 
elementary basic games that we would play. And people were just playing that for economic reasons. So I, I don't know whether you all remember there was a point in time that Apple was struggling between going from skeuomorphic, which is basically trying to relate the design towards something people already know, into what is called the flat design paradigm. And it, it took a lot of internal debate to get to the flat design that, that actually allowed them to keep pace with some of the Android UIs out there. So if you, if you think from that point of view, yes, there is nothing wrong about taking the best practices of uh, Web2 design. I think that that is not the point I'm trying to make. What the point I'm trying to make here is Web3 has a very different ethos from experience. So I, I actually went and learned Solidity programming. And I'm someone who is really so old that I used to, when I was in my teenager years, I programmed Kobo for a living. Okay. And I think there are not many Kobo programmers left. I used to get $100 per hour. And then I think about the way I program when I started learning Solidity, thinking about how to do a smart contract. It's totally different from what I've learned in the past, whether I'm doing something in C, JavaScript, HTML. And what I realized through that experience was I need to throw away some of what I understand from Web 1, Web 2, and now into Web 3. And then I evolved it. What my point here is that maybe the point is not to make it so marketing driven just to web 2 to web 3 but more of trying to think of what is in web 3 that's interesting that you can design a new paradigm you could take some best practices from web 2 into web 3 but it's not totally web 2 slap web 2 into web 3 maybe that's the point i'm trying to drive is that probably the way people think about it or is it because the best applications is still not web 2 driven it still comes from totally innovation within the Web3 space? Or maybe that's changing. I think from the companies that we've seen across the board, oftentimes once a Web2 project, they're trying to look for an exit with Web2, with Web3, with the traction of the token. But I think that's often, of course, the wrong approach. That, you know, from the outside perspective, everyone thinks that, you know, well, Web3 tokens are so much easier. Web3 projects are so much easier to manage. They just issue a token and people buy it and like does really well. And, and voila, it's like so easy. But that's not the case at all. Basically, you have an extra stakeholder, which is your shareholders at a very early stage of your company when you issue a token in a Web3 world. And that's an additional type of execution and coordination and management that you have to handle as a founder on top of all the things you have to build. So often, we've seen a lot of impressive founders out there in Web2 world, but oftentimes they fail in execution. And that's what leads to the failure of the startup. If you cannot execute on Web2 space, you cannot execute in Web3. It's going to be even harder. It's magnitudes harder. It's about giving up many of the existing ethos. I think also when you are a Web2 founder, where like you're holding the power, you're holding the decision making, it's actually a philosophical change to your personality of you're not doing that anymore. I'm here to serve everyone else in our community. That's just the case it is. And I know, I know people say that in, in Web2 world too for founders, but it's not the same. You really have to be collaborative more so than any type of role you could get. Just that's a very good point. And maybe that also explains why the better Web3 companies tend to be younger people because they come in with no conceptions of what was before. And they learned from the get-go that they need to start managing the token when they go into a TG, they need to manage this group of so-called investors far, far earlier than maybe someone who had built a successful Web2 company or take it to public is where it really learns in much, much later in the cycle. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yep, I agreed. You need a lot more conviction as a young founder. You also need to be a great, you know, leader of a visionary. So those traits are all just. It's like how do we? How do you find the next Sam Bank Freeman or Vitalik? Right? It's that's right. 
I have this questions which I actually came up because after I read Moxie's article on my first impressions of Web3, it's really interesting, right? And I guess maybe instead of trying to talk about like what are the things we are not very good at, maybe is what are the most interesting problems in the space at the moment? Yeah, Bernard, I'm, I'm glad uh, you didn't drag the conversation into a Web2 versus Web3 debate. It's been had so many times over Twitter with, with Moxie, Chris Dixon, it just goes on and on. And there are smarter people in the world to talk about that. But I think what Moxie really brought to a point are some of the problems still in the Web3 ecosystem. Like a lot of the points he raises, like the two main ones being that people don't want to run their own servers, one. And two, like we still fundamentally need to reduce like the, the cost of building software. And I guess as like a meta point, he also makes the point that to interact with dApps, you actually just have to go through like a couple centralized services, like Alchemy and Infura are the two that he mentioned. I mean, these are all very legitimate points. And I think a lot of these points, when you zoom in, they seem to scare people. These are very specific technical points that go against like the decentralized Web3 ethos. But if you zoom out and see the broader picture, what I still see as like the major problem points, besides some of the smaller technical ones, is that there just aren't that many good on-ramps for people into crypto. When I try to bring my friends into GCR, half of them stop midway through the process because they have to download a MetaMask wallet, interact with Uniswap, pull up Discord, gate their tokens through Collabland. Like there are so many steps in the process when it should really just be a one-step solution. And so I think we have a lot of people building technical tools and gadgets to shore up some of these more specific points. But just broadly speaking, like if we're trying to adopt the next billion people into crypto, it's just got to be a much simpler onboarding process. Jin, Joyce, do you have any thoughts on what, what are the current most interesting problems in the space at the moment? I, I know for one, for me, is I wish I could just have one MetaMask wallet. And when I need to change to a different network, it auto detects and change it right instead of me manually doing it all the time. Exactly. And I, I think what Dan said, like, I think having those layers of applications to get one task done does not make Web 3.0 any more efficient than current world that we live in. And we are seeing that problem. Like we are seeing so many applications that are trying to do one thing instead of trying to be an end-to-end -end solution. So hopefully going forward, we will see more solutions that will be able to provide an end-to-end -end experience for the users so that it's easier to onboard, lower the barriers to entry to crypto. Joyce, any thoughts? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think one of the most immediate pain points for, for me, you know, is when we are managing our treasury and we have all these different tokens and different, like similar to your to your concern, actually, Bernard, we have all these different tokens and different multi-sigs. So in the Web3 world, many projects keep their treasuries in a multi-signature wallet, meaning that you have to have multiple people sign or press a button on MetaMask to agree to release the funds or transfer the funds. So that itself is a coordination pain when you're getting multiple people to sign. And then now when you have 10 different wallets because you're on multiple chains and each of them have a multi-sig and you need two people to sign every one of them for every transaction you do, it's a human coordination problem that's taken, taken to another level. And crypto with Web3 and DAOs in general is just human coordination. A lot of it probably is not easy to, I, I think, build tools for because it's very, I mean, there's a lot of things to build for, but also a lot, a lot of times it's very new type of exercises and activities that you're doing with your counterparts or individuals. So I think what we're seeing also is that oftentimes folks in the crypto space get hung up in the big market or a lot of disruptive spaces within crypto and the exciting parts of the technology, but they actually don't focus enough on the day-to-day. 
So that's something that I think, as a true crypto person who spends so much time in the space, that's why I hope we spend more time on. And it will come, I believe it, right? It's like there are billions of dollars literally being poured into the space. So I'm not worried about it. <laughs> you, know, you know, the unsexy part of doing angel investing in Web3 is me convincing a group of Web2 investors to register and sign on their own MetaMask wallets. Where in Philippines, the YGG is basically training people how to do MetaMask wallets and get into XE easily. Exactly. There, there needs to be like a school lesson on how to onboard into crypto. Like everyone, every year, like school year, grade year, you should be, I think that should be actually offered from at some point in these more progressive schools. That makes more sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And first of all, many thanks for all of you coming on this panel, because I think we can go on for hours if you really want to dive into a lot of deeper questions. And we should do that at some point. I just have two more questions before I go into the closing. Joyce, for people who are interested in Web3, how do they contact GCR and get involved? Yeah, yeah. I, I want to revert what Dan said about the difficulties of joining GCR, which is that all you need is a MetaMask wallet and purchase some tokens on Uniswap or QuickSwap on Polygon, and you'll be able to connect to the GCR Discord that way. So all you could do is uh, type in gcr.community. That's the link, gcr.community, and you can join GCR that way with some GCR tokens in your wallet. You can actually also buy GCR on Coinbase now, I think. So hopefully that makes it easier for folks over the world. And what does great look like for GCR in the next few years? I, I love to hear what Jen and Dan actually has to say about this. We, <laughs> uh, this is from something that, I mean, I have a personal view, but maybe I'll put it, I'll say it last and maybe Dan and Jen can share. My personal goal is that global coin research is an investment down and there are a lot of other investment DAOs, but we want to be known as the investment DAO who can not only potentially lead deals, but also actually add value to the companies that we invest in. I think that's a key factor that a lot of investment DAOs or even venture capital firms have not been able to master. And that hopefully in the near term future, we streamline the process of onboarding portfolio company, companies in various ways for us to help them out and add value as an investor and, and also as a partner. And that's going to be the ongoing effort for everyone involved. So I'm excited for where we are headed and hopefully Global Coin Research can be the dominating investment DAO, if not a dominating investor in crypto. For me, I'll know that GCR is a success or a great success when at some point in the future, one of the, the most prominent crypto portfolio managers or venture capital investors is within the GCR network and started from the bottom up. And this person didn't have a Harvard, Stanford, or, or even like a Princeton degree and really emerged from within GCR. Because I think uh, GCR is like a talent aggregation tool for the world's best investors. And I see my role as building out like the infrastructure, like a skeleton. And I guess you can put it on chain for people to plug and play and do what they're really talented at, which in this case is investing. I think those both sound really great. Originally, I had just one point in mind. I, I think that actually very much aligns with what, what Jin was saying, is that I want GCR to build its brand verbally from the founders 
that we support. And, and we don't even ever have to promote ourselves at any point. It's that founders are able to recognize our value add, introduce us to projects and, and identify our unique position that we can support them in ways that you know VCs or crypto investors cannot do, which is, I think we're really on our way there, but there's still a few more things to build. But it's something that I think that will really speak to the hard work that we do without ever having to promote ourselves, which I think for VCs, oftentimes it's not a reverse, right? It's it's about spending time promoting yourself, talking about how value-added you are. For us, it's about doing and showing to all the entrepreneurs that we want to support that we can get them far without having to sell them on anything. For each one of you, any recommendations that have inspired you recently? Is this books? Sorry. I just yeah, books, movies, Netflix, everything else. Oh, yeah. everything. Oh, it's, it's all yeah. NFTs also, right? Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> The one thing that I've read recently that really inspired me was uh, a book called The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz, who is a founding partner at Anderson Horowitz. Reading his journey as a CEO uh, and as a now an investor is so inspiring because there were so many rough patches that he had to go through and to overcome to get to where he is. You got to have a grit throughout the journey. And as you mentioned, Bernard, like we're going to go through a lot of cycles and who knows, like we might come to a bear cycle that might be worse than what we saw in the past three years. And we just need to bruise through that and having a clear vision and conviction around something during such hard macroeconomic conditions is going to be challenging. But reading how Ben did it was just so inspiring. And I think that's what you need to be not only as a strong, smart founder, but also as a smart investor. And that's something that hopefully I can really develop personally in the next few years. Yeah, just to echo Jin's point, it's funny, uh, I'm reading a similar-ish book called Founders at Work by Jessica Livingston, uh, who's the co-founder of Y Combinator with Paul Graham. And it's basically super in-depth interviews with some of the greats. I, I guess it's Web2 entrepreneurs and also Web1 entrepreneurs, some OGs in this book. And the two things that really stick out to me are the details really matter and it's all about the team. It really is. I think what inspires me is that you guys are reading these books and I don't actually mean it in a, in a condescending or any way, but like I read these books like five years ago and then now like hearing you guys reading it and thinking about how to contribute to GCR and how to formulate and drive GCR's vision, that actually really is something that keeps me going. For me, it's like you've seen the good and bad, but it's actually when the people around you that are very committed and, and, and dedicated to building something interesting that actually touches me more than reading books nowadays. Wow. Yeah. Okay, that's a very new recommendation, but it's a very interesting one. How do my audience find you? By the way, I know Twitter is one place, but there's also LinkedIn, there's also Discord as well. So you can feel free to plug your channels. <laughs> yeah, our Twitter account, definitely feel free to check it out. It's Global Coin Research. Research is spelled R-S-R-C-H because we couldn't fit all the characters in the Twitter account. Uh, but you could also check me out at Joyce in NYC. That's my Twitter account. And I'm on Twitter as Mick Leonad. It's my name spelled backwards, Daniel Kim. Yeah, for me, uh, it's the Jen Kang, T-H-E-J-I-N-K-A-N-G. That's my Twitter and my Discord username. I'm just going to do the usual spiel by telling everybody that the podcast is available on every platform now. And you can definitely give us a five-star rating and give us reviews as well. But I think the most important thing is just tweet to us, give us your feedback. This is an ongoing conversation Daniel, Jin, and Joyce, many thanks for coming on the show and I look forward to much more 
fun conversations moving ahead for the next couple of years. Thank you. Thank you, Bernard. Thanks so much. Thank you, Bernard. Run it, run it, run it.